Hey, really good friends. This podcast contains adult content and language. Listen with care. Hello, Hello and welcome to Historically Really Good Friends, a queer history podcast. I'm Rachel Craig. And I'm Jared Femblow. And holy shit, <laughs> we are doing We're this. We're really here. I did not think we would be. No. Honestly. No, me neither. Yeah. Was this uh, something that you kind of envisioned yourself doing in the year 2022? You know... I think this was always one of the pipe dream things of like, ah, if it all goes to shit, we'll just, we'll start a podcast and then, um... So I think everything has gone to yeah, shit is what you're yeah, saying? Yeah, kind okay. of. I mean, I think people can relate to the fact that, um, it's now 2022, we're in our second year of COVID, Jesus, and yeah. if you... I didn't learn how to bake, so I had to kind of start a podcast. No. It was sort of the only option. Right. I never got to the bread baking stage, so kind of skipped that. I, w- I got into a few arts and arts and crafts hobbies, mm-hmm. um, but podcast seemed logical. It did, yeah. I mean, starting a podcast with one of your best friends, I would call you my best friend, but I didn't want to put pressure on you to, to say it back. But That is a lot of pressure. <laughs> but, you know, starting a <laughs> podcast with one of your best friends definitely – like a covid it just had to happen it was eventually going to happen and we we right. sort of took the leap and here we are but we took the leap really really quickly so i don't think what people know about us is that you and i we're impulsive but also if we don't do the thing right then and there it never happens and we'll talk each other out of doing whatever we're doing so like we'll be like hey do you want to do this and we'll be like yeah we could or we don't have to and then we're like yeah no we don't have to it's fine we, we, we won't do it and then we just never end up doing it yeah it was really this was the one time i will say that if it weren't for amazon prime try not to like i really try not to do amazon prime <laughs> but if i absolutely did not order a microphone within two days and have it delivered to my house i don't think historically really good friends would exist would be happening uh, yeah i really don't it, it was a it was an important an impulse choice but i think right i think we made a good one i think this was this was a successful choice so far we're about three minutes in but i'm confident so for some people that may not know we know each other from high school and we were only in what one history class together the entire four years i think so yeah junior year because you were you, you were an honors history kid weren't you going into high school well you know how in high school or in school in general, there's like gym tryhards. I think that's mm-hmm. a relatable concept to us because we weren't gym tryhards. Um, <laughs> no, not in the least. But I was what I'm going to call a history tryhard in that, you know, like history was the one class that I went really hard at. I wanted to be really good in. I wanted to cultivate this fun reputation as like ooh, who's that girl she's cute she understands socialism as an economic policy rather than like a political party who's she i want to talk right. to her you everybody know? loves her yeah i wanted right. to be like fun cool girl but also somehow incorporate being good at history and in that i don't know where 
it was just my pick me high school girl tendencies manifesting in history class, you know? (laughs) So um, I can't say that it necessarily worked. I don't know what reputation came out of that, but I don't think it was the one I was shooting for, but. I, on the other hand, learned like the Egyptian irrigation (laughs) system for like, like six years. (laughs) Like we never got past the American revolution. Uh, We we got to like the civil war maybe once uh, going in. So I didn't try all that hard um, in history. Uh, I had one history teacher who um, would like weirdly kind of rub my back a little bit uh, sophomore year of high school um, and that was kind of the year that I thought, all right, you need to, you need to step it up and you need to get an honors so you're not in this guy's class again. Mm. Um, and that's really where the studying came into play. Yeah, the studying was um, a safety measure. It was a, it was a precautionary oh, measure. My fight or flight kicked in. It was like fight, flight, or study. <laughs> study. Or get into U.S. history honors. <laughs> right, and it was history honors from there on out, which was the only year that I ever had the opportunity. Um, so I took it and I <laughs> ran with it. Now I didn't do that well in the class, but I got in and it was like, once you were in, you were in. So I kind of, uh, I got in and that's all I really needed. Yeah. It was the switch from the rather, um, creepy history teacher to the, uh, I would say fun skater, uh, history teacher, like- the history teacher of, all like the coming of age yeah tv like movies needless to say we have about a 10th grade 11th grade understanding of history at most mainly u.s history and i would venture to say it's probably not very progressive or inclusive history <laughs> no not at all our history textbooks weren't necessarily anything special they weren't really teaching us anything out of the ordinary and and what the ordinary was was eurocentric united states northern united states history um which yeah. is very pat on the back right it's totally. really uh look at how good we did and we don't really mm-hmm. need to do anything else we, we did it. it definitely left out a lot of stuff that took i would say mostly self-education mm-hmm. to to discover about the world that we've literally lived in for 23 years now yeah four yeah so i guess that kind of sort of sums up our journey to creating this podcast to talk about some of the missing intentionally missing forgotten or otherwise ignored history um, and that's sort of our intention with this podcast is to bring back these topics and these people and these events that really had a great impact on society, yet they're not talked about at all. We hope that you can kind of join us to learn some some fun facts, some, some history that um, we were never kind of told. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, do you want to go first this week? Yeah, I'll kick us off for our first week. We'll jump right in. Each week, Jared and I are going to tell you a little story about a person that maybe you know a little bit about them, maybe you know nothing about them, but hopefully you're able to learn a little bit of something. Um, This week, I'm going to be talking about 
the lovely and talented Frida Kahlo. Ooh. Very excited. Do you know anything about Frida, Jared? Not as much as I probably should. You know, I think I have a very elementary um, school understanding of Frida Kahlo. Usually she has animals, plants. Uh, she does a lot of self-portraits. Um, but besides kind of what you see, I don't really know much else. I love that. I love a, I love a clean slate. Sources that I used for today's episode on Frida um, Art and background that I use for this episode and are going to be featured on our Instagram are from the Frida Kahlo Foundation. There are some quotes taken from an online article by Will Kohler for Back to Stonewall. Some more images and background taken from Encyclopedia Britannica. There are some quotes and present-day artwork inspired by Frida um, found on Google Arts and Culture titled Frida Kahlo's Lasting Impact on LGBTQ Artists. I used a Vanity Fair piece entitled Frida Kahlo's Diary, A Glimpse into Her Tortured Scribble-Happy Words, uh, a TED-Ed lesson, Frida Kahlo, The Woman Behind the Legend. Also some articles from CNN, The Marginalian, Biography.com, and Art Raider Journal. All these links will be shared with you. I want to give a special shout out to my old therapist who kind of put me on to the complicated history of Frida Kahlo. <laughs> my therapist wanted me to learn about resilience. And then another special kind of shout out to the 2013 episode of History Chicks podcast that covered Frida Kahlo's life in more detail and the young feminist in me loved it. So without kind of any further ado, I want to welcome to the stage the lover of older men, Latin American superstars, and Soviet exiles, Miss Frida Kahlo. So right out of the gate, we kind of have a controversy. Okay. Um, So brace yourself. No, I'm braced. (laughs) Magdalena Carmen Frida Kahlo y Calderon was born in Coyoacan, Mexico on July 6th, 1907, though... She claims to have been born in 1910. What? Why? Because Frida's life and her work were very closely tied to Mexicanidad and Mexican nationalism, Frida wanted to be closely associated to the Mexican Revolution, which began in 1910. Um, So she was actually born three years earlier in 1907. So she was three at the start of the Mexican Revolution. So at age six... Frida contracted polio and recovered, but she felt lasting impacts from the illness kind of for the rest of her life. So her life started off sort of tumultuously with the revolution and then contracting uh, polio. By age 18, she had experienced the Mexican Revolution, this near fatal illness. She was educated at an elite Mexican school where she was one of only 35 girls. um, And she had developed a crush on the very handsome, very talented, very much 20 years older muralist Diego Rivera, who was creating a piece for her school. I'm sorry, did you say 20 years old? Yeah, he was, tw- he was 20 years older than her. This was kind of just a schoolgirl crush from a distance. They didn't really meet or start dating at this time. They actually met again later. Okay, uh, that yeah. makes me feel a little bit better. She had done all this by the time she was 18. Um, it was in, this was 1925 for some more context. So, you know, when I was 18, my crowning achievement was going to four One Direction concerts and making it through high school without... <laughs> getting mono but I promptly got mono my freshman fall of college so you know <laughs> not you can only do so time, much but probably not in the cards for me to be like an art prodigy 
Um, no. <laughs> also, though, at age 18 in 1925, Frida experienced a terrible accident on the way home from school. So her bus collided with a streetcar and she was impaled with like the mm. iron handrail through her pelvis. What? Yeah, it punctured her uterus and her abdomen. Uh, so really wild. She's 18 at this time. So when the crash happened, others that were on her bus had died immediately. And so there were some people on the bus who weren't harmed, though, including her boyfriend at the time. So the people who were kind of unscathed at the moment saw Frida and didn't really know what to do. So they removed the rod from her body. Please just in the future, don't let my boyfriend do that. You like you know no, Eddie, I, don't let him do that. If this happens I would never. Isn't that isn't that the number one rule though, is that if you are impaled with something, you don't remove it because then that lets all of the blood flow out and you bleed out that way. We'll we'll give them the benefit of the doubt. They were strangers. This was obviously a very life altering moment. Um and Frida did survive. Likely not because of this, but either way, she did survive. But because of the injuries sustained in the initial accident and the removal of the rod heroically but rather unceremoniously she would suffer you know chronic pain for the rest of her life she would never be able to support a pregnancy to term and she had to undergo more than 30 operations from the time she was 18 until the time that she died so already you know she's experienced things that you know both positive and extremely negative that a lot of people never experience in their life So as one could imagine, (laughs) this was life-changing, more so than my four One Direction concerts, even though those were Mm. relatively life-changing. Yeah, I believe it. It did shape Frida's adult life. So during her long and intense recovery, she began painting in her hospital bed. So she was in the hospital for a while recovering, and this is when she kind of started her artistic journey. Uh, So one year later, she finished one of her earliest self-portraits entitled Self-Portrait Wearing a Velvet Dress. Uh, It's it's a fantastic painting. Could use some work on the title, but we'll give that. It is a rather long title. Uh, Yeah, and all of her self-portraits are entitled Self-Portrait and then describe Mm. what the image is of. So uh, that's Okay, consistency. Right, right. So at this point, she decided to study art, and this is where she ran into a recently divorced, but still 20 years older, Diego Rivera. Dun, dun, dun. That is crazy. Yeah, so you're right. They had a little bit of a meet-cute. She had kind of a crush on him. It's reported in some places that, you know, she said to one of her friends at the time that they were going to get married. Um, Mm. And in 1929... They did get married. She was 22 and he was 42. And on his fourth marriage, Mm. um, no shame. It's just an observation. Mm. We we love a sugar daddy. Go Frida. All good. And I will say that until her death, Frida said that Diego was the love of her life. So after this... Frida became quite the cosmopolitan woman. Uh, She was traveling across the world to show both her and her husband's work. So Diego was also a famous artist. Frida, though, was the first 20th century Mexican artist to be included in the Louvre's collection. Wow. So she was was really famous even, you know, while she was alive. Mm -hmm. 
She spent time in America where she created the painting Henry Ford Hospital. This is kind of a heart-wrenching depiction of her experience having a miscarriage in America. So again, that's due to her accident. Good to know that even in the 20th century, the American healthcare system was kind of fucked up enough to make people make art about it. Yikes. But then back in Mexico City, Frida and Diego created art and hosted guests from all over the world to talk about progressive politics, communism, and the future of Mexico after the revolution. Um, It was at these parties that Frida and Diego met some of their most notable lovers. For Frida, it was Leon Trotsky and actress Dolores Del Rio, who, may I add, was one of her husband's mistresses as well. They had a, a little love triangle going on. They did. And I do like to think that Frida was having these really fun, wild sex parties, like with her husband's lovers in this, we'll upload a picture, but they had a very cute, like artist loft cottage core style. And did he know that she was sleeping with the same women that he was? So reports of their relationship are very interesting. And I don't know, people describe it as being tumultuous. And I can imagine that it was difficult. There is also you know, a lot of noting of the fact that Diego slept with her sister, with Frida's sister. Um, So I don't know the nature of their relationship. I don't know if they Mm -hmm. were like a non-monogamous couple and maybe they were all cool with this. They did get divorced at one time and then remarry the same year. So Mm -hmm. I don't know if this was just what their relationship was to them. It was open though that they were each having affairs. So it was likely that they just sort of had an open relationship and were cool with it. And, you know, one thing that did strike me about their relationship, but also about just Frida in general, was that she was openly bisexual. So Diego knew that she was sleeping with women and she, you know, was open about that to others as well. And this was in the early 1900s. So we're talking 1920s and 1930s. So And she's open and doesn't really care what others are saying or thinking or feeling about it yeah and I know we've talked about this in the past and I wonder you know a question that kind of kept popping into my head was that at this time if it was the same you know kind of culture surrounding same-sex relationships or it was just that no one cared slash still cares Mm -hmm. about female pleasure or really understands female anatomy well enough to understand sexual relationships between women and like recognize them as having the same validity as sexual relationships Mm -hmm. between men and women. Either way, I kind of love this for the fact that Frida was able to be open about who she wanted to sleep with. So you know what? Well, cheers to that. Whatever whatever the reason, she was kind of like living her life fairly openly. Dolores Del Rio, who was one of Frida's lovers and her husband's, uh, she was a famous actress and is likely the feature of Frida's painting Two Nudes in a Forest, also known as The Earth Itself. So Frida's art featured the female body quite often. It sometimes was her own. It could have been two women together, which this painting was, or it was like disabled bodies. um, And kind of her experience with the female form is a staple throughout her work. And another reason why her art is so important because it features kind of like the female body in a lot of different ways. So there's also some speculation about a very special friendship that Kahlo had with Georgia O'Keeffe. 
the famous vagina flower artist yeah the painter um i say vagina flower artist with like the utmost respect um absolutely it's what she was both women are very talented but they love drawing like vaginas and boobs so it just is what it is i didn't know that they were uh alive and working or creating at the same time yeah so georgia was older than frida So um, Frida may have just liked some like older lovers. Um, And I I do, I think this is a lesser known aspect of both of their lives. And I do want to respect the fact that the Georgia O'Keeffe Museum and we'll say quote unquote scholars, because I don't really know what that means. They were just like Georgia O'Keeffe scholars. I don't totally know what that means, but. Couldn't tell you. They kind of allude to the fact that that the two only had a platonic relationship but mm. considering that this is historically really good, friends, really good friends i do want to propose that they were really good friends um or at least frida was hoping that they would be or were intimate um okay. i'm gonna give you the reasons why georgia was an artist in america she was older than frida like i said and she was one of Frida's main kind of artistic rivals, uh, Frida had expressed envy for some of George's success. Um, but the two developed a sort of mentoring relationship because, which kind of makes sense. I mean, they were two very famous female artists at the time. So as their friendship developed, they frequently exchanged intimate letters to one another um, and also about one another to other people so after finding out that georgia was in the hospital and was required to take a break from painting you know the thing that she had done her whole life frida wrote to her quote i thought of you a lot and never forgot your wonderful hands and the color of your eyes i will see you soon i am sure that in new york i will be much happier if you are still in the hospital when i come back i will bring you flowers but it's so difficult to find ones that i like for you i would be so happy if you could write me even two words i like you very much georgia i like you very much georgia too that is that's yeah that's a letter that you don't just i mean she could have very well been writing to like you're saying a very good friend or she could have been writing to a quote-unquote very good friend but no one knows that they're quote-unquote very good friends so frida is writing this letter in a coded language so that georgia knows what frida is saying but anybody else who reads the letter maybe to georgia if she can't use her hands to open the letter or or she can't read it herself they don't know what the true meaning of it is so that's really really interesting it's a very sweet letter i it really makes me happy to read it and so there's also the fact i will just complicate things even more so there's also the fact that frida had written a letter to her friend about georgia after visiting her in the hospital and frida wrote about georgia She didn't make love to me at that time. I think on account of her weakness, too bad. So, you know, maybe this was a one-sided, like, unrequited love affair, but I do think that Frida experienced a little enemies-to-lovers crush on one very special Georgia O'Keeffe. It's hard to hear a letter like that and not just want them to have been together. I know. I'm, like, invested. Right. I, I, 
wish there were letters from Georgia or some something else, but I guess we'll just have to kind of take what we have from Frida and hope and dream. <laughs> I certainly think that some of my speculation that maybe um, there was at least hope for a really close relationship uh, is is fairly true. That's the story that I'm gonna that I'm gonna believe. Oh, I'll believe it too. That's a great story to believe. Yeah, and there is some more substantiated relationships that Frida had in her life. So another prominent lover of hers was Chavela Vargas. She was a Costa Rican-born singer. So Chavela recalls meeting Frida at her home, La Casa Azul, and um, talks about forming a lifelong connection with her. At the age of 80, Vargas came out publicly as a lesbian and detailed her relationship with Frida. So this was a really sweet story because while Frida was openly bisexual throughout her life, um, it wasn't until later in her life that Chavela came out as a lesbian, but then talked about a really close relationship and that she kind of had and cherished with Frida. So Frida spent her last few years at La Casa Azul where Chavela lived with her and played her songs as Frida recovered from her various surgeries. The two were very close, and Chavela was with Frida when she died in her childhood home at the age of 47. Um, there are some really sweet photographs of them together. La Casa Azul became a museum, and Frida is still one of the most popular and recognizable female artists, both of her time and kind of still to this day. Shortly before her death, Frida wrote, I hope the exit is joyful and I hope never to return, Frida. So Will Kohler in Back to Stonewall wrote, quote, her ideas surrounding sexuality wove themselves through her art in various ways and led her to explore themes of infertility, sexual pleasure, and her tumultuous relationship with her husband, Diego Rivera. Outside of her work, her attitude towards love was refreshing. She disregarded the limitations of gender and instead let herself be attracted to the creative spirits of both men and women. So, you know, there is and there always will be, especially on the show, speculation about which women Frida had sexual relationships with. But regardless, Frida's intimacy with women allowed her to explore her own body, sexuality, and disability. This whole story has been really transformative to me. If the concept of gateway drugs were was actually real, I think Frida Kahlo was my gateway drug to intersectional feminism. <laughs> like, like Frida Kahlo has been my weed this week. She like has gracefully taken me on a journey through like disability, pain, love, revolution, colonialism, and lesbian lovers, which is exactly what happens when you take an edible. <laughs> <laughs> or one could hope at least. In her art, all of us can find Mexicani dad representation, some colorful monkeys, some sick unibrow representation, and a little piece of ourselves. And she has a really big fan in Madonna who has an original Frida self-portrait as part of her $100 million art collection. So like at this point, how could you not be on board? All of the cool girls love Frida. And I hope you do too now. Um, plus, you can look at her art for free and you don't have to pay $100 million. <laughs> <laughs> Frida's legacy kind of still stands, and she has been a muse for many current artists, especially those who saw their own lives in Frida's story of marginalization. We're going to include their names and links to their art on our Instagram. So, yeah, that's Frida. That was an amazing, amazing, heartbreaking, harrowing, lovely, lovely, lovely story. That ending really, I don't know if there is a better way to go. 
than to be surrounded by someone that you love so much. It's just, it's beautiful. As tragic as parts of her life and certainly her premature death were, she was certainly surrounded by people who loved her very, very deeply. And, you know, I can only hope that still we can kind of give that love back to her because she, even just reading this story and putting this together, is just a really transformative person. I see definitely what my therapist was talking about in her story of resilience, (laughs) (laughs) but it's definitely, she was definitely surrounded by a lot of love. And that's kind of the thing that I want to stick with people about Frida. It sounds like Frida was just kind of an unapologetic badass. Like she was herself in this time when being someone like her was not, and I mean, even to this day still is not accepted. You know, she's very intersectional. She's a woman. She's a woman of color. She's disabled. She's queer. Like she's all of these different things. And she's just kind of being like, fuck it. Like that's, that's who I am. That's, that is what I am. And it's so amazing. And I can see how everybody can kind of find themselves within Frida and within her artwork. Um, And she, after hearing the story, is now absolutely one of my favorite artists that there ever will be. Yeah, she's just a super freaking cool gal. And I'm so happy to have gotten to tell her story in this first week. I love it. So thanks. Thanks for listening. Thank you. And I can't wait to do more. All right. Today I'm going to be talking to you about the disgraced and foreigner queen of France, Marie Antoinette. I am so excited. Just real quick off the top, I just want to get some sources out of the way. I used multiple articles from Wikipedia on Marie Antoinette and a few other women. I used two articles from history.com, one entitled Marie Antoinette and um, another one called 10 Things You May Not Know About Marie Antoinette. I used PBS's site dedicated to Marie Antoinette. I used a great, a really great article from Wussy Magazine titled Yesterqueers, Marie Antoinette, Lesbian Icon by Kayla Goggin. I used an article from the journal Representations called Marie Antoinette Obsession by Terry Castle. And an article from Sunstroke Magazine called Queer Opulence, How Marie Antoinette Became a Gay Icon by Rhiannon Oriel. Maria Antonia Josefa Johanna is born in Vienna, Austria in 1755. She is the 15th child to the rulers of Austria. And as soon as she's born, Maria Antonia is placed under the care of a governess, which creates an extremely difficult relationship with her mother, the Empress Maria Theresa. As you would expect with a royal child, she has a very luxurious childhood. She is constantly traveling from palace to palace in Austria, but she does have a lot of pressure on her when it comes to being a royal. Despite all of her private tutoring, she has a shaky education and she can't read in German, French, or Italian, which are all languages used in the course in high society. She excels in more artistic areas like music, dance, and art, but she meets Mozart when she's around the age of seven and he's two months younger than her and he's already a child prodigy. So, the things that she's supposedly good at 
compared to those around her aren't really impressive and everyone in her family already thinks she's inadequate in various areas of her life and every avenue that she turns down she isn't meeting the expectations of her family and i mean I'm the youngest of my family. I have an older brother and an older sister, and I was always the center of attention, but that was just with three kids. So imagine being the 15th child. You have 14 other siblings. Like at that point, nothing you can do or say will be able to win you the attention and affection that you crave. Like they've seen it all, and you're kind of just like a backup child at that point. Like, God forbid one of the first 14 children dies, you have at <laughs> least one other child on standby. There's no, there's definitely feels like it's hard to create lasting bonds when there's 17 of you. There's there's no reason to have more than I'd, what four children at like five feels excessive. So having fifteen children altogether feels almost like vindictive in a way. When she's eleven, Maria Antonia's hand in marriage is promised to the Dauphin of France, who is basically the heir to the throne, and this is in order to secure relations between Austria and France. And Marie Antoinette, unfortunately, is just a little lamb to the slaughter. And four years later, when she's 15 and the Dauphin is 16, they're married by proxy in Vienna. And unfortunately, uh, this means that her brother stands in for the Dauphin. So she's basically in a ceremony marrying her brother. And at this point, her and the Dauphin have still never met. At this ceremony, she also renounces all titles and rights to the Austrian royal family, and she now solely belongs to the French royal family, of which she's met exactly zero members. A month later, Maria Antonia meets her husband at the edge of a forest in France, and here she adopts the French version of her name, Marie Antoinette. And I like to think that it happens exactly like Sofia Coppola's 2006 classic Marie Antoinette, um, in which the couple so very awkwardly hugs and it's like <laughs> when you're in middle school and you're like quote-unquote dating somebody but like holding hands mm. is a big deal and then hugging someone is an e- even bigger deal like the hug is right. just so so friggin' uncomfortable and then yeah. how old were they at this point they're still 15 and 16 so right they're relatively young and new to the like dating scene but this is a person (laughs) that they've just married and they don't know each other they've never met before then marie antoinette gets in the carriage and she is pulled away away from her mother away from her country and away from the life that she has known then the couple has a real wedding ceremony at versailles there's more than five thousand guests and suddenly marie antoinette is thrust into the public eye of france Instantly, she gets a mixed reaction from the public. Some people love her. Some people loathe her. There's really no in-between. She's a foreigner from a country that was recently enemy number one, and they just spent all of this money on an incredibly lavish wedding. It's kind of like with um, the royals in England. It's like either you're really into it and you really love the tabloids, or you can't stand them. There's no really in-between. Yeah, but you know what? I did wake up at four o'clock in the morning in seventh grade to watch the royal wedding. And oh, I most certainly did. It's verifiable. I'm pretty sure it was my sister's birthday too. Um, 
So I will say that if I was living at this time, I'm fairly confident that I would be in the camp that is really into all of this. (laughs) (laughs) The couple then fails to consummate their marriage, and not only on their wedding night, but also for the first seven years of their marriage. Her husband is painfully shy, incredibly awkward, and apparently he's actually medically impotent. In the Wussy Mag article called Yesterqueers, Marie Antoinette Lesbian Icon by Kayla Goggin, she writes that court decorum required their sheets be inspected each day for signs of blood and kingly omissions. Uh, the couple's inability to produce an heir became another symbol of Antoinette's inadequacy. Uh, that's so not how female bodies were. <laughs> no. Oh, man. Yeah, that's upsetting. These people are kind of like, g- like right. go have sex right now. Do it as much right. as you can and produce an heir. Right, and we'll watch you if we have to. And it's not creepy, I promise. I swear it's not creepy, but we have to. And if you don't have a boy, we maybe will kill you. So have fun, no pressure, no pressure, good luck. Have fun, girly. And so not only does Marie Antoinette now live in a country where she knows no one, she has no friends and no family, she has a new name, she now has a husband who doesn't even want to be with her. A few years later, the King of France dies from smallpox, so the Dauphin and Marie Antoinette ascend the throne and become King Louis XVI and the Queen of France. She's 19. Luckily, though, for Marie Antoinette, she has very little official duties, very limited political influence, so she spends a lot of her time socializing and spending money on fashion, gambling, and even renovating a personal chateau. People are literally lay mizzing in the streets, rioting over bread and flour prices, and she is blowing money like she has never done before, which obvi mm. causes quite the controversy. <laughs> um, what's her name is out there crying for her baby, and she's dying. Anne Hathaway, Anne Hathaway. has got short hair. She Anne Hathaway to cut her hair for this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and the queen is over here renovating chateaus. It's certainly not a good look. It's an understandable look, but it's not a good one, really. Right. But again, at 19, she now has access to all this money. She just does not understand the implications of her spending. She just is not aware of it. And because of her spending habits, which, by the way, the people of France are very aware of, it becomes habit to blame Marie Antoinette, the foreigner, for all of their money problems, which stem heavily from France's involvement in the American Revolution, which started before she was even queen. Conditions are quickly worsening for the common people, who pay nearly all the taxes, whereas any class higher essentially pays nothing, and the common people lock onto Marie Antoinette as a source for their rage and stick with it. I mean, it smells like misogyny but okay the common people (laughs) believe the nobility is conspiring against them and that the quote-unquote austrian whore was doing everything in their power to undermine the people and not to mention the press is having a fucking field day going after marie antoinette newspapers and pamphlets are circulating widely they spread pornographic cartoons and label her as a salacious woman accuse her of adultery and sexual deviance and incest and even treason they spread Mm. news of wild hedonistic orgies and lesbian love affairs which some might have some truth to them whether the publishers and authors knew of it or not yeah i mean marie antoinette said fine if you're gonna say it about me i may as well do it right Literally, if you're going to spread the news, I'll make it reality, babes. Right. Like, you've given me some new ideas. Let's try that one out today. Right. She wasn't even thinking it before, and then she read it and was like, you know what? That is Mm. not a bad idea. 
And so Marie Antoinette throughout all of this very, very understandably retreats further into the safety of her court where she finds the intimacy and desire that she's not receiving from her husband or her people, but from those who are actually the closest to her, her ladies in waiting, of which she had deep friendships with two of her intimate companions, as the mm. internet loves to call them. Yeah, it's I would a call theme. them more. Mm. Right. They were historically really, really good gal pals. <laughs> <laughs> and so in 1770, when Marie Antoinette is married to the Dauphin, she's introduced to an 18-year-old widow named Marie Therese Louise of Savoy, the Princess of Limbal, and that is a region in northwestern France. And Marie Antoinette is charmed by Marie Therese to the highest degree and overwhelms Marie Therese with attention and affections, and many people notice this. Marie Therese quickly becomes Marie Antoinette's number one confidant, and as soon as Marie Antoinette becomes queen, she moves Marie Therese into Versailles. And the queen, very clearly playing favorites, appoints Marie Therese to a position of superintendent of the queen's household, which is the highest ranking position for a woman under the queen, and basically is the job that's in charge of all of the queen's affairs. Marie Therese is given a very nice room at Versailles and quite a large salary, and this is controversial because Marie Therese married into a very influential family and inherited her husband's fortune when he died, yet she's still receiving a salary that the country couldn't really afford and hasn't been able to afford for the last three decades, which is why the position has been open. And so mm-hmm. here comes Marie Antoinette, not really knowing that, being like, hey, bestie, I have a job for you, and it pays really, really nicely. It's funny because Marie Therese is actually asked to renounce the pay, but she refuses, and the queen doesn't make her give it up. And so the two women become inseparable. Marie Therese is always at the side of Marie Antoinette. They spend all day together in each other's company. They spend alone time at the Petit Trianon, the queen's private chateau on the grounds of Versailles. And Marie Therese also travels everywhere that the king and queen go. Marie Antoinette describes Marie Therese to her husband, saying that her friendship is the charm of my life. And it's even said that during their first separation, the queen was so distraught and unconsolable that she had Marie Therese's portrait painted on a mirror of the room she most frequented. So every time she went in, she would see Marie Therese. According to the Wikipedia article on her, Marie Therese was openly talked about as the favorite of the queen and was greeted almost as visiting royalty when she traveled around the country during her free time. She even had poems dedicated to her. And it's not hard to understand why Marie Antoinette is so obsessed with Marie Therese. She's this pretty young woman who wants to give all of her attention and energy to Marie Antoinette, something that Marie Antoinette has never really received before. But Despite always being able to amuse the queen and securing her affection so early on, Marie Therese is incredibly reclusive. She never wants to participate in high society, but rather would spend all of her hours alone with the queen. And the queen wants to be with people. She never really wants to be alone, and she wants to be in on the action. Enter the second lady-in-waiting-turned-lover, Yolande de Polistrand, the Duchess of Polignac, who goes by Gabrielle. She's an outgoing socialite who appears on the scene and very quickly wins over the affections of Marie Antoinette on first sight, just like Marie Therese did at first. They meet at a formal party when Gabrielle is introduced to the queen. Marie Antoinette is instantly dazzled by her, so much so that Marie Antoinette invites her to move into Versailles permanently. And I like to think of Marie Antoinette as the blueprint for a U-Haul lesbian. (laughs) Do you know what that is? 
<laughs> no, but is it, is it, I'm going to, can I guess? Please. Is it, yeah, tell me what you think U-Haul lesbian is. Okay. Is it lesbians that, because it's my understanding that, uh-huh. that the stereotype is that lesbians take things uh, rather quickly. So is it that um, she very quickly moves people into, well, into her living situation, but like they move in rather quickly? Yeah, so a U-Haul lesbian is a stereotype of a lesbian um, where they move in together after the first or second date. And so Marie Antoinette <laughs> is meeting these people and basically being like, hey, would you like to move into my house? And they're just kind of like, yeah, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a pretty good gig to just yeah. like, I, I am guessing have sex with the queen and live in literally a palace and that be you know, your job in a way that's, I guess, I don't think it would be considered sex work at this point, but like, no. they're, they're, they're doing other jobs. But you know what, that seems, that seems like a reasonable opportunity, a reasonable sure. prospect. Sure, why not go for it? And so Gabrielle explains to the queen that she and her husband are already in massive debt, and they don't really have the funds to move to Versailles and participate in the courts. So Marie Antoinette, in the sugariest of sugar mommy moves, pays off the entire Polignac family's various outstanding debts, finds Gabrielle's husband a job, and moves them into Versailles on her dime. Instantly, as it so happens, Gabrielle is absorbed into the queen's inner circle, rises to the top, and becomes the leader of that inner circle, and no one else is allowed to join without Gabrielle's approval. And Marie-Therese, original bestie and number one to the queen, is incredibly skeptical of Gabrielle and her intentions. Like, who is this woman, and how did she gain all of this favor with the queen so quickly? From the get-go, she does not like Gabrielle, the woman coming in between her and the queen. Marie-Therese calls Gabrielle a bad influence on the queen, and Gabrielle, having mutual feelings of distaste for Marie-Therese, calls Marie-Therese a bore and a prude. When Marie-Antoinette and her circle begin theatrical performances at the Petit Trianon, Gabrielle goes as far as convincing the queen to not let Marie-Therese attend. Unable to get Marie-Therese and Gabrielle to like each other, Marie-Antoinette begins to favor Gabrielle who could better amuse her. Gabrielle is gradually shifted into Marie-Therese's position as the favorite. Similarly to what happened when Marie Antoinette and Marie Therese became close, the public goes after Gabrielle, publishing pamphlets and articles about the torrid lesbian love escapades of her and the queen. Now Marie Therese is constantly arguing with the queen, and it seems like she's always in the wrong. Their relationship becomes hot and cold, while Marie Antoinette and Gabrielle's relationship becomes even more steadfast. But Marie Antoinette occasionally seeks solace in Marie Therese, who still lives at Versailles, Gabrielle is constantly going and going, always a source of entertainment, but Marie Antoinette appreciates Marie Therese's consistent loyalty and composure. The two women remain in battle with one another, trying to win over the Queen's undivided attention. Marie Antoinette's mother, Empress Maria Theresa, passes away, and Marie Antoinette shuts herself away with both Marie Therese and Gabrielle for the entire winter to mourn. And it seems like this sort of helps smooth out some of the issues between Marie Therese and Gabrielle. And over the next couple of years, their relationships all sort of seem to be steady. But the king eventually falls into a deep depression, and he asks for Marie Antoinette's advice and help in politics. And so as she becomes more engaged in the politics, her relationship with Gabrielle, who is basically still a party girl at this point, begins to deteriorate. And 
Marie Therese, who has had a lot of health problems for years, is finally on the mend and begins to participate in the courts again alongside Marie Antoinette. This reunion reignites their friendship and they mend their past issues. And so Marie Antoinette begins to show affections to Marie Therese again. And they're so solid that, again, they're by each other's sides pretty much until they meet their fates, which are both these Romeo and Juliet style dramatic endings. And as the French Revolution is really ramping up, Marie Therese is in England, the royal family is in Paris, but they try to escape Paris to avoid death at the hands of angry mobs. But 24 hours into their attempted escape, they're actually caught and brought back to Paris under protective guard. Mm -hmm. And in the journal representations, Terry Castle writes that Marie Antoinette, upon the capture, sent the Princess of Limbal a ring set with a lock of her now whitened hair and with the pathetic words bleached by sorrow engraved upon it. The melancholy Limbal in turn sent the queen a repeater watch to remind her of the hours we have passed together. The queen requests Marie Therese to return to her side and continue her duties or resign immediately, and Marie Therese announces her return to France by saying, I must live and die with her. So hatred for the king and queen and the royal family as a whole grows so much that the palace they're being guarded at is actually stormed and the royal family is imprisoned. Marie Antoinette tries to give Marie Therese multiple outs before they're captured, but Marie Therese stays with Marie Antoinette the entire time. And a week into their imprisonment, Marie Therese is separated from the queen and taken to another prison for interrogation, where she's asked to renounce the king and queen, but she refuses to do so. Reportedly, she's immediately taken to the street to a group of men who then kill her within minutes. Marie Therese is struck on the head by a man with a pike which causes her hair to fall from her shoulders, revealing a secret letter from Marie Antoinette she had hidden in her hair. Marie Therese's head is then put on a pike and paraded through the city to the prison where the royal family still stays. The crowd chants for Marie Antoinette to kiss the lips of her favorite as they place it outside of her prison. Marie Antoinette is eventually transferred from the prison to an isolated cell in a prison in Paris as prisoner number 280. Terry Castle writes that among the last possessions taken from Marie Antoinette during her final removal from the prison had been a tear-stained miniature of the Princess of Limbal. Marie Antoinette is taken to the guillotine and dies a month and a half later after her supposed lover. One last thing that I want to mention, Marie Antoinette's legacy continues to live on today. We're constantly seeing iconography um, of her hair and of cake even if it was not something she actually said. Um, we're seeing it in modern culture. We're seeing it in TV shows. We're seeing it in movies. We're seeing it in music videos. We're seeing it in songs. We are seeing it everywhere. So even though they tried to get rid of Marie Antoinette, her legacy is going to live on for a very, very long time. We'll never know 100% if Marie Antoinette truly had these queer relationships. We'll never know if she and Marie Therese were lovers for certain. Um, she's rumored to have relationships with Mary Robinson, who is an English writer, and Lady Sophie Farrell of Bournemouth, who was a well-known lesbian English baroness at the time. It seems like Marie Antoinette's lesbianism, if we can call it that, was certainly a point of attack from the French people with these pamphlets and um, with the cartoons and the rumors. 
But if it was merely for being politicized, then how come there are stories about an English writer and an English baroness? It's like there are so many relationships that I didn't touch upon with Marie Antoinette that it's kind of hard to believe that all of these relationships were just out of spite of the queen. It feels to me that at least one of them has to be true. So I'm not sure if this is an attempt to de-lesbianize Marie Antoinette or if it truly didn't happen. Either way, whether she had romantic interest in women or not, uh, Marie Antoinette's legacy truly would kind of become a sapphic code, which is something historians have tried to distance the infamous queen from. But as Rhiannon Oriel writes in the article Queer Opulence, how Marie Antoinette became a gay icon, asking if one had heard the rumors about Marie Antoinette or by dropping her name in some way would indicate where your erotic inclinations lay. So I urge everybody here listening to, uh, if you feel so inclined, go ahead and ask some very, very cute and attractive women and non-binary folks if they've heard the rumors about Marie Antoinette. And maybe, just maybe, Marie Antoinette will help you get laid. And that is the story of the disgraced, beheaded, and incredibly queer queen herself, Marie Antoinette. Oh, that was, it it was fantastic. Great job. But I will say, even if the one thing I did know about that story was mostly how it was going to end, that did not make it any easier. (laughs) That was It never does. No, it was pretty heart-wrenching, especially considering that beheading, I would say, is bad enough, but dying a gruesome death is even harder considering the fact that you had to recently watch your lover die a similarly gruesome death when she could have potentially escaped maybe reconsider next time the salary with with the housing at the palace that's all i'll say (laughs) all right well looks like i've finished my glass of wine Uh, My deodorant has definitely stopped deodorizing, and my seasonal depression light, which I had set on a timer for one hour, has shut off. So I think that's our cue to go, or like our history books are going to turn back into pumpkins or something. (laughs) Thank you everyone for tuning in to the first episode of Historically Really Good Friends, where we talked about some badass queens. This is your weekly reminder that acknowledging the queerness of our history makes even the most gruesome beheadings a little bit more fun. We hope to see you again next week. And if you'd please rate, review, and subscribe or follow this podcast wherever you listen, it really does wonders for us. The higher the rating we have, the more people can see it, and we're hoping to spread a little queerness into everybody's lives. (laughs) Also, if you want to see photos from our episode today, we will be posting those on our Instagram, at historicallyreally. If your friends are visual learners, go ahead and share that profile with them. We know they will love it. I'll see you next week. See you next week. Goodbye. Goodbye.